Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're talking to Cindy Yu about China, about Xi Jinping, about Hong Kong, and about the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party. How does it all fit together? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading review of culture and ideas. And the LRB is returning to first principles with their latest exclusive offer for Talking Politics listeners. Get 12 issues of the magazine for just £12 and they'll also send you one of their surprisingly famous tote bags, acclaimed by the likes of New York Magazine and Vice. Just use the URL mylrb.co.uk slash talkingbag. That's mylrb.co.uk slash talking bag. We recorded this conversation, Helen Thompson and I, with Cindy Yu on Tuesday. Cindy is the host of the really excellent Chinese Whispers podcast, which covers almost all aspects of China and Chinese politics. And we wanted to take advantage of her expertise to try and really cover the field and see if we can pull together the different strands of coverage of China in the West. So we started with Hong Kong. Cindy, on your podcast, you cover pretty much all aspects of uh, Chinese politics, culture, society. And we do want to do a sort of tour of some of the big themes, thinking about Chinese politics, particularly as seen from the West. But maybe we could start with Hong Kong, because for many people before the pandemic, the central question about China was what was going on in Hong Kong. And it seemed to be a struggle that was high stakes for everyone. And now, insofar as it gets attention in the West, it's a sort of background rumble. And I think the assumption is that Beijing won. And even if it's not under control, that the situation is a sort of slow grind of wearing down the opposition. Is that how it seems from Beijing? Does Beijing think Hong Kong is under control? Yeah, I think that is pretty much how they see it as well. And what their ideal situation is, is to have the world not pay attention because there's no one big dramatic moment that's happening. What we've seen over the last year and some months uh, since the national security law was introduced is this kind of slow trickle down the slow erosion of Hong Kong's freedoms in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of areas. But because it's happening so gradually, the world's attention has essentially moved on. There, There are no more glamorous, amazing protests to be covering because that sort of stuff is not possible in Hong Kong anymore. And so given that, what's happening there is definitely happening, but none of it is a big wow moment that makes for good um, copy or for good videos elsewhere. But yes, for Beijing, essentially, this is the start of one party, uh, one country, one system. How important, Cindy, do you think the pandemic was as a, a turning point in this? Because if you look to what was happening at sort of the end of 2019, it looked somewhat against his will, I would have said, that Trump was being pushed into a more confrontational attitude about Hong Kong. And then you had moves really to try to push in the US Congress to try to hurt China economically through Hong Kong. And yet, as you say, as things played out in the middle of 2020, it, it was to essentially to give Beijing a, a victory. Was it the fact that the pandemic changed on the ground things in Hong Kong, including perhaps just making the literal act of protesting that much more difficult that swayed things in Beijing's favour? Yeah, and I think there are a couple of ways in which the pandemic changed things. Uh, one is, as you say, it makes protests much harder. 
But two, it also meant that the media on the ground in Hong Kong, which was doing such great uh, work, getting a lot of this information out, was distracted, as in not necessarily in a bad way or in justifiable way. There, there was a pandemic going on, but they were then reporting on quarantine. They were p- reporting on vaccine, that sort of stuff that meant the anti-Beijing protest took a bit of a backseat in the media landscape, both within Hong Kong and globally. On the first point about COVID's real impact, you know, we've seen the Hong Kong government use this as, as an excuse to push back uh, elections that it thinks it wouldn't do very well in. We've seen that uh, protests are often used under the guise of anti-gathering laws because of COVID. Um, so all of that has essentially served as a kind of fire blanket to dampen the entire atmosphere of, of the city, which was incredibly fraught before COVID. And now because of this year of pandemic and lockdowns, it feels like everything has been silenced and put into the background. But if you talk to people who live in Hong Kong, a lot of them, especially the more Western leaning ones or the more internationalist ones, you know, they, they do feel like there's a different atmosphere in the city right now. They feel a bit more scared to talk about things. Some of them are talking about leaving the city. I've talked to academics who are careful about what they say to make sure they're not they're not treading on any toes. And that sort of stuff shouldn't have ever happened in Hong Kong, at least not so soon. But does that mean that as the pandemic wanes, which presumably it will do, the response from the authorities is going to have to be more clampdowns? I mean, it's going to have to be more strident or that there might alternatively be a possibility that this could flare up again? All of us, the last 18 months are this weird sort of hiatus. Right. And no one quite knows if this is the new normal or actually we've been living in a a bubble and and it might be that things really kind of come back to life. Presumably protests could come back to life or do you think there's been a sea change? I think it's unlikely unfortunately because I think that the government in Hong Kong and in Beijing have used the last year and a half very effectively. Since the national security law has been in place they've essentially collared the Hong Kong media which used to be pretty free and the ones that they can't collar like Apple Daily they've shut down and used a variety of reasons to basically arrest and jail the leaders of of that paper, which is a tabloid pro-democracy paper, um, very much associated with the movement. Jimmy Lai, the former head of it, is in jail, and we don't know when he'll ever be out. There are other people who are implicated in that operation who are scared to go back to Hong Kong. So I was talking recently to um, Mark Clifford, who is um, who was sat on the board for Apple Daily, um, and he's now set up something called the Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong, which is an NGO looking at how to free these political prisoners. But because the government has used this time so well, I don't think anything is coming back in the short term. Students are terrified now because people in their midst who protested are given up to 10 years in jail. Um, Obviously, they might be released a bit sooner, but the headline sentences are such. And for infractions like waving a flag that said um, the Hong Kong protest slogan, it's very minor infractions that are getting people into trouble. And we've seen other dissidents. Well, I mean, I guess we do have to call them dissidents now where they used to be protesters. But now we have to call them dissidents like Nathan Law, who literally have left the country because they're afraid of um, further action. Civil servants have been made to swear a pledge of allegiance. Uh, The education system is changing because to Beijing, they see the education, the lack of so-called patriotic education as the problem in Hong Kong, i.e. propaganda. And so they're trying to change that. And so I think this entire population has been essentially silenced. Some people in society will think that that's a good thing because not everyone in Hong Kong supported the way the protesters had done things. But certainly those who disagree these days have very few outlets to say that. 
And I don't think that's a pandemic thing. I don't think that's going to come back anytime soon. Cindy, one thing that I'm curious about is that if you look at things that were being said, certainly in, in Western media and political commentary in 2019 and perhaps even in early 2020, there was a line of argument that said it was too risky for Beijing to do this. Hong Kong was too important as a financial centre for China acting as the financial conduit between China and the rest of the world economy for there to be this kind of really decisive political shift in Beijing's favour. Why did it not turn out like that? Well, Beijing called their bluff, essentially. They said, if you want to leave Hong Kong because it's going to be politically different, not economically different, then go on, be my guest. And companies like HSBC have said, okay, we'll stay. (laughs) Because the Asia Pacific is such an important area and Hong Kong remains an important city for that and will remain that for at least the next decade, I think. But then you also have to think about mainland China's impact, involvement in all of this. Shenzhen, Shanghai, these are both big financial centres and up and coming. And without some kind of dealings with mainland China, you wouldn't, as a multinational company, be successful in that region. Essentially, Beijing called the bluff. And we've actually seen not many businesses (laughs) changing their business strategy because of it. Some of the most interesting tension parallel at the moment, a contradiction, is the political conversation and the business conversation. I mean, despite this hardening of rhetoric on both sides on politics, Actually, a lot of business people are continuing to do business with China. You've seen Wall Street go back into China with renewed fervor. Um, You've seen other companies, you know, just not even thinking about leaving China as as a base for its Asian operation. So I think that's really interesting. And I think China probably, Beijing probably thinks about that strategically. They probably think, you know, we might have lost governments, governmental allies across the across the world, but if we give these certain little small perks to private companies, they might come in a bit more. So I I think that's a really interesting thing that's happening under the surface that politicians are not necessarily paying attention to. So is the implication of that that even if not at the outset, but now the approach to Hong Kong is part of a wider strategy and that you can tie this in to a wider strategic vision in Beijing and that Hong Kong now isn't some, you know, its own thing, that this has to be seen as a coherent approach to a whole range of questions, including how China relates to the wider world. Is is there a coherent strategy here? I think there is. I think there's a political strategy and an economic strategy. The economic strategy, Hong Kong was always very good at delivering, because when Hong Kong was handed over to China in 1997, China's economic growth had just about started, but it wasn't anywhere near Hong Kong levels. At the time, Hong Kongers used to look down on mainlanders and think, you know, these are like our poorer cousins. Now that's different. And now that China no longer needs Hong Kong to be the economic leader, to be this kind of port, portway into China, because it's got other cities like Shenzhen and Shanghai, it can expand the importance of other cities. And we hear something called the Pearl River Delta, which is the river uh, mouth that goes via Hong Kong and through Shenzhen. And that area as a whole, the whole Bay Area is something that Beijing is trying to stimulate to be a further growth. So Hong Kong is becoming more like the mainland. Those mainland cities are becoming more economically important. And that is going to be a region, as it were, of, of international finance, not just Hong Kong by itself anymore. And the political strategy is one you know, I don't know how much this goes down to Xi Jinping's own personal desire for a legacy or how much of it is just the nationalism of the current cohort of communist leaders at the moment. But 
Hong Kong's proper return, as it were, not not just this one country, two systems, but its proper return into the Chinese folds is a matter of pride for the Chinese. It's a matter of pride that Hong Kong is no longer reminding them of the circumstances that Hong Kong left and went in under British rule. And we can see Taiwan in a similar light as well. China is trying to repair its territorial claims. As I say, I don't know if that's part of Xi Jinping's personal legacy or just wider party desires, but it certainly is a, is a notion of legacy, of territory, of this is what a strong country has, our, our, our old territories back, essentially. I was going to ask you about the relationship between the Hong Kong situation and, and Taiwan. I mean, it's one way of of thinking about what's going on, that that the parallel is really a sort of 19th century European powers territorial unification project. Yeah, that's an interesting parallel. Basically, what Hong Kong has done for Taiwan is those, those, you know, those 20 year olds protesting in Hong Kong have had a butterfly effect in that war with Taiwan is now more likely because China often said to Taiwan, you know, you come back to the fold, it could be one country, two systems like Hong Kong is. Well, now you're Taiwanese, you look at Hong Kong, you're thinking it's never going to be that way, or at least it's not going to be that way for long. That very much lessens the possibility of a peaceful reunification. Now, if a peaceful reunification is not possible, that leaves Xi Jinping with not many options if he wants Taiwan back. And I think that definitely leads, is, is part of the reason for why the speed of things across the Taiwan Strait in the last few months has sped up because, you know, the party has limited options. If Taiwan is not going to come back peacefully, what else can you do if you want Taiwan back? And Hong Kong has meant that one party, one country, two systems is now, you know, is a laughable proposal. Does this mean then, would you draw the the conclusion that the possibility that China will try to seize Taiwan by military force is a real one? I think it is. I don't mean it is in in the next year, but I think China has a window of opportunity before America completes its pivot to Asia, which Biden has signaled he wants to do through AUKUS and other methods, that China has this window of opportunity. And also before the Taiwanese become too Taiwanese and not Chinese enough, because with every generation of um, native Taiwanese Chinese who are born on the islands, they identify less and less with China. And that's a problem as well for any possibility of peaceful reunification. So the window of reunification is closing. And so Xi Jinping may very well want to force the matter. I think that he's unlikely to do it unless he can be sure of victory. On this matter, you know, Western analysts might get it wrong in the same way as they got it wrong when they talked about businesses leaving Hong Kong, that she might just think, if I could occupy Taiwan, I don't think there's going to be that much pushback afterwards. I just need to successfully land my troops, occupy the island, and I doubt America will will do anything afterwards to get me out of there. That might be the kind of calculation he's doing at the moment, but I don't think he'd, he'd want to go in there for a long, drawn-out war, not least because it would look quite bad in Chinese public opinion to have Taiwanese people be victim to a warlike situation because there's so much similarity across the strait and there's so much linguistic commonality. For a lot of people in China, they're quite excited about thinking about Taiwanese reunification because they do think about it in the same way as the Hong Kong handover, this kind of coming back of um, long lost relatives and that sort of thing. They wouldn't want to see a long drawn out war in that context. But because of that closing window, she doesn't have much time to do that. So I think military action is definitely on the table. So I'd normally be pretty resistant to these parallels with the 19th century or 20th century and European conflicts and reunification. But, you know, this language of closing windows and 
maybe the, the lesson drawn that you can call a bluff of the West, you can call a bluff of business interests. It's incredibly precarious. The chances of someone calling this wrong and someone miscalculating, particularly if it's a relatively narrow time frame, and given how unstable Western politics is in various respects, the risks here must be enormous. I mean, it's, it, you know, for, for Xi to calculate one thing or another, but it's an incredibly dangerous situation, isn't it? I mean, it's not like Hong Kong in that respect. So if the lesson is that we called their bluff in Hong Kong, we can do it again in Taiwan, sounds to me incredibly dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. And it's definitely not like Hong Kong because Hong Kong was... Hong Kong's return was treaty bound, mm. um, negotiated, um, relatively peaceful and welcomed by the people in Hong Kong as well at the time. So it's not like Hong Kong at all. And you're right, it's, it's a very fraught area right now, which is why I think I think the West needs to think about ways to deter China from making a move on Taiwan before any move is made, as it were. So that deterrence is probably the most important part of any military counter at the moment and it's interesting that in China my family and friends have been advised to start stockpiling now I don't know how much of that is local government officials taking their job a bit too zealously but there are memos going out right now saying you know you might want to start thinking about stockpiling for war now <laughs> that seems like a pretty realistic preparation on the Chinese side and you know my the reaction from my people that I know in China are just saying you know let's think about it, tinned foods, all this sort of stuff. You know, if we take Taiwan and the Americans retaliate and they besiege uh, supply chains, what could happen to us ordinary people? So, the, you know, the wheels are in motion. And I, 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 frankly, I don't know how it's going to turn out. And I, I, on my podcast, I spoke to um, a Stanford academic called Oriana Skylo-Mastri, and she was saying how, you know, the best case scenario to come out from the Taiwan Strait might just be the status quo of this kind of, always this kind of threat of military action, but never quite happening because anything that happens will be worse than what it currently is. And it's not going to get better. But if the West was to think about deterrence, what sort of deterrence might be effective? What are the implicit threats that would get the attention of Beijing? So she was saying, and I agree with this, is that if you could get the economy talking, so I think you could say to your businesses in the West and say, sanctioning China in terms of economic trade, basically choking the Chinese economy off, that would get Beijing to pay attention. I kind of feel like, yes, that probably would work if you could be comprehensive enough to do that. But as we just talked about with Hong Kong, clearly businesses have different priorities. And I don't really know how far a free country can go in telling its businesses who it can trade with, especially the existential role and importance that China plays in a lot of um, small and medium-sized businesses and um, maybe America can but certainly I wouldn't have thought it's the way that things are done in the UK so I, I don't really think that's a realistic deterrent there are more military things you can do so for example China's uh, liberate people's liberation army have been looking into how to jam communications off the American bases in the area so that if and when an attack happens the Americans can't respond from their local bases fast enough so that's the kind of thing if on a military level if you know that the Chinese are looking at that you can look at ways to counter them but I, I don't really know what would deter them because clearly from COVID they have had this international pariah status almost and if they do go for Taiwan they'll have more of one but that doesn't seem to deter them in terms of international reputation um, I, I do think that something can be said about whether or not it would be a good thing for China to really go for it for China's, from China's perspective. I think what I'm picking up is a lot of hubris within Beijing, a lot of feeling that 
you know, there's a lot of this grand narrative of the second century of the Chinese Communist Party being this moment for national rejuvenation. And even academics who are normally quite, you know, liberal minded are saying things like China has stood up. So if China bites off more than it can chew, then without the kind of military or economic strength that justifies that kind of action, then I actually don't think that would be very good for China um, in the medium run. Something could break, essentially. So so I, I, I don't know if... I'm not saying, I guess, that China is going to win um, full stop. It, it still has weaknesses. It still has energy weaknesses that are related to um, it, its maritime position. It has weakness, fundamental weakness in the, the Straits of Malacca that it's been trying to do something about since at least the time of the, um, the second Iraq war. I just wanted to press you, Cindy, on whether you think that actually thinking about a Western response is actually the right way of thinking about what's going on. Uh, and whether actually this isn't really first and foremost about the United States and the Indo-Pacific powers and Japan um, in particular. I mean, aren't the European powers, regardless of British or French aspirations in the Indo-Pacific, kind of big players in terms of the scenario that we're talking about? And isn't perhaps the Chinese hubris of, of, of thinking about it as a China-Western confrontation rather than thinking about those Indo-Pacific powers, particularly I'm thinking about Japan's position that obviously would be radically changed if military conquest of Taiwan took place. Yeah, absolutely. I think countries like Japan and South Korea have a particularly tight spot that they're in because for them is the most important to get this right. If they get it wrong, they lose Chinese trade, which for them is even more important than for the UK or America because of their proximity. But also, <laughs> if they get it wrong, it means that they lose the kind of Western buffer that Taiwan served as, and China is one step closer. You, you always do need some kind of geographical buffer in in the area. I know that Japan has just come out of an election, and its, its government doesn't seem to be paying a lot of attention to the Taiwan problem just yet. But I guess we'll have to wait and see, you know, how they balance that kind of trade off. It is interesting, though, that when we're talking about in in the UK, for example, this idea of the D10 to counter China, Japan's reaction is, well, you can't have South Korea on there. (laughs) So these historical tensions are still kind of coming in the way of this idea of tackling China um, in some areas. So I guess it's just about people getting their act together and just prioritising how important of a problem they think China is. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ready to pop the question? The jewellers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Do you think it is possible to disentangle, you mentioned this earlier, how much of this is Xi's personal philosophy, indeed personal hubris potentially, and how much this is something that is shared by, and I, as I've been talking to you, you know, we talk about Beijing, but Beijing could mean lots of different things, but a kind of leadership clique or elite and a, a general sort of nationalist hubris around that. Can these things be disentangled again as covered from the West, the story at the moment about China, Xi's growing power, 
you know, the creation of a kind of personality cult, the strong possibility that he will extend his term next year, that he's identifying himself with the 100th anniversary of the CCP. And yet, presumably, there are many, many very powerful players, and they can't all have the same view, can they? Well, we used to, in the China field, talk about the four factions that existed in the Chinese Communist Party, represented by various big dogs, big beasts of the leadership. Since Xi Jinping has come to power, and especially since the anti-corruption campaign of um, 2012, that kind of factional rivalry is now much harder to see. And the problem with talking about the inner politics of the Chinese Communist Party is not that it doesn't happen. You're right that the party is not a monolith. There is no such one thing as Beijing, as it were. But we don't know so much about it because they're so good at keeping a lid on it. You know, for example, the recent um, social media allegations against one former vice premier, Zhang Gali, apparently he had a, a mistress who was 40 years younger than him, uh, was censored immediately. So that's the sort of thing that the apparatus is very good at getting rid of, just kind of dampening any gossip or any speculation about what's happening inside the party. It's incredibly opaque. Having said that, from people who've been looking at this sort of stuff a lot, um, Victor Xi in California is one very good academic to follow on this one. You know, people think that actually these factions don't exist as much anymore. Xi Jinping has pretty successfully gathered everyone together. Now, is that because he has so much overwhelming power? Or is that because his agenda suits their agenda at the same time? Because these are also people who see, who are infected by the hubristic bug, who see China's standing up and agree with him on the general nationalistic direction. I don't think we'll, we'll know until someone can smuggle some kind of memoir out or something like that. But I think if he delivers, then he will continue to be in place. And from the Chinese perspective, he is delivering right now. COVID was a shaky moment in February 2020. But from looking at it in October, in November 2021, China can make a good stab at saying, yeah, we've actually done this quite well. You might point to the situation in Xinjiang and say this is clearly a failure. Well, not necessarily to the party, right? So I think, and also for Hong Kong as well, which it has pretty successfully managed to dampen down. So I think if Xi Jinping continues to deliver, he will have not too many challenges from within the party. But if he doesn't, then that relationship, I mean, it's an incredibly cutthroat political environment, as we know from what happened in the past. So I, I'm sure he wouldn't you know, be given too much benefit of the doubt if people dis disagreed with him that much on things. When we talk about COP26 happening in the last month and wondering why China didn't come, why Xi Jinping didn't come, I think there's a domestic politics reason for that as well. So that, you know, last week was the sixth plenum of the party where there was this historic resolution that elevated Xi Jinping to the same level as Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping. Now, if he had missed that because he was in Glasgow, negotiating some kind of phasing uh, uh, down of coal, then he may well have seen some manoeuvres um, from within the party. So I think that that was a moment, you know, this next year for him is very vitally important until the National Party Congress next October, when he is confirmed in his second decade in power. It's a very important time for him to make sure that his hand is completely uh, on the driving wheel. That's interesting um, point you just made there, and it ties into what I was going to ask you, which is whether you think that fundamentally what Xi Jinping's done is to change the way in which risks are perceived in Beijing and that what you're describing there is is like concentrating on domestic political risks, including to his own power, whereas 
10 years ago, we might have thought that actually that there was a much more caution in relation to external risks in Beijing. Is it that actually there's been a a greater prioritisation of domestic politics, domestic stability under Xi's leadership? No, I think domestic politics has always played a very, the leading role really um, in Chinese foreign policy. Like you, you always have to look at it through a domestic lens. Who are they playing to? Um, Chinese public opinion does matter, despite it not being a democracy. And what are the dynamics and tensions it's dealing with within the party and the country? But I think the balance of risk has changed because of the hubris part, actually. I think because many people in China, governing China right now, think that it can take on more risk because China is now stronger and able to back itself up a bit more compared to 10, 20 years ago, that that's why we're seeing China kind of provoking through wolf warrior diplomacy or through the Taiwan Strait or Hong Kong national security law. That's why we're seeing that, I think, because China thinks it can take on this kind of more risky steps. You know, Deng Xiaoping, we used to say, hide your capability and bide your time. I mean, I think the point now in the in the government is that well, we have the capability, we don't need to hide it anymore. If we, we're going to try to do what we want. So as you said, there's a strong possibility that Xi's philosophy serves the interests of other elites and that there is a shared understanding of the value of a certain kind of nationalism and a certain kind of outlook. But Xi's thought is also, I mean, it's being taught now, Xi Jinping thought, and it's, to me at least, it looks more ideological than the pragmatism one associated with the development of Chinese politics maybe 10 years ago. So this may be a complete misapprehension on my part, someone who's just viewing this from a sort of comfortable Western perspective. But, I mean, Xi seems to have made more of an effort to identify himself with 100th anniversary of the CCP. It is still the Chinese Communist Party. He does talk a language of socialism and sometimes even Marxism. What lies behind that? I mean, how ideological should we see this project as being beyond the ideology of a Chinese century and China rising again as a political philosophy, as an account of what a modern politics should look like. Is there a genuine Xi philosophy here? To start with, I think you're right that they are moving away from pragmatism and moving towards ideology. Not necessarily because of Xi Jinping thought, because Xi Jinping thought, I see that as a kind of I see it as a slogan. Every Chinese leader since Mao has had their own equivalent of Xi Jinping thought that they talk about. You know, Jiang Zemin had the three represents, for example. And essentially, a lot of the time, these mean nothing. I I couldn't, your average Chinese person could not tell you the tenets of Xi Jinping thought. And it doesn't matter to them in their everyday lives. But I think it is becoming more ideological in one way, which is economics. Now, it's something that they've started talking about, this idea of common prosperity. It's a Maoist term, but in the 10 years, we didn't hear much about it because it wasn't so much about common prosperity. It was about getting the country rich. And if some people got richer first, then so be it. That has led to huge inequality in China right now. It's more unequal than America, for example. There are a lot of billionaires, but a lot more people living in still relative poverty. Now, Xi Jinping is talking about common prosperity now in this kind of almost this return of true socialism in China. Um, he wants to eradicate that kind of inequality. Or well, at least he says he does. So we'll have to see how much he actually does on this front. Is that an explicit contrast to the West? I mean, is that part of what's framing this over the last, you know, since 2008, essentially, the narrative that China is just another capitalist country? Well, it's not on this account. 
because it's the kind of modern industrial project. I mean, Marxism was a modern industrial project, but the one that doesn't allow capitalism to get out of hand. Is that in contrast to what might be said to be happening in the West? Yeah, I think so. I think it's obviously the West cares about inequality, but the way China has done it, um, the, the few policies associated with common prosperity so far have been completely different, I think, to what we might say, we might see the UK or, or the US doing. For example, um, essentially arm twisting leading technology companies like Alibaba and their billionaire founders like Jack Ma into this kind of state-directed philanthropy um, towards this common prosperity cause is something that wouldn't happen, I think, in the West, at least not to the same extent. Whereas we might talk more about a welfare state, for example, which is not so much talked about in China. And actually, in many ways, China is has a very poor welfare state. And there was a great article recently about this um, Chinese woman, Chinese journalist who moved to France and realized that France was more socialist than China was in terms of the welfare provisions um, there. So uh, yes, it is is different to the West. um, But the goal, I guess, is to go to the same kind of level of mature society with social mobility, with an expanded middle class and not too many people living on the breadline and also not too many extraordinarily what they call unreasonably rich people at the top. If we try to put though this in a in a longer perspective, Cindy, of the hundred years of the Chinese Communist Party, I mean the way that you described that the that aspiration of how to conceive common prosperity is about is you wouldn't need a, a communist party in order to talk that language. But clearly in lots of ways Xi Jinping has really I don't want to say doubled down, but reinforced a language about history and the historical importance of the Chinese Communist Party, tied it to China's longer history, including perhaps unlike other leaders, tying it to China's imperial past and then sort of seeing the the centre of humiliation as the Chinese Communist Party was able to, to lead China out of after great sacrifices. And I just wonder how seriously you think we should take Xi Jinping's language about China's historical destiny and the conjunction of that with it being the last bastion of 20th century communism. I mean, if we'd gone and started in like 1917, the Bolshevik revolution and said, okay, the one place where that really matters in the world, the Communist Party, I'm not sure that many people would have said China. Yeah, and I, I think that's because the party has been so good at adapting. The founders of the Chinese Communist Party wouldn't be able to recognise the party right now, and certainly not in the excesses of the Den years. And, you know, arguably, right now, we a lot of people look back at the Cultural Revolution and think, that this is a different party that's done it, that's done this. I think that when Xi Jinping talks about communism, always take it with a pinch of salt. When he talks about nationalism or the national rejuvenation, that I think is what is really at the heart of the thing. I don't think the people governing China right now are, are communists or Marxists. You know, they might have studied Marx to a greater extent than any of their contemporaries internationally speaking. I don't think they believe it. I don't even think Xi Jinping himself believes it. But what he does believe in is that China is a great country and that he can make China great again and that China deserves to be, you know, a great country, if not the superpower, then at least up there. I think that ramping up of rhetoric is because of, you know, it, it kind of feels within reach to some people in China. You know, they managed to deal with COVID at a lower death toll than most other major countries. They managed to be the only major economy to grow in 2020. Uh, they are managing to become high tech. Uh, they are managing to become an economic 
center of the world. It does feel like right now that there is an overturning of history to people in China. And, you know, this is not just the politicians. This is your ordinary people as well. They are becoming much more China-centric, proud of being Chinese. And sometimes that goes into jingoism or into racism, kind of incredible confidence in being Chinese that is increasing in the last 10 years. But I would say that it started in the 90s. And I would say that there was this identification after the Tiananmen protest of this hollowing out of the ideology of China, of, of people not believing in anything, or at least believing in the wrong things, i.e. democracy. And then so you saw in the 90s, when I was growing up, this patriotic education campaign, i.e. renewed propaganda efforts in schools, linking those things that you mentioned, linking the century of humiliation to the Chinese Communist Party, to the economic growth, and making a very persuasive and powerful narrative about how China has stood up. And now those children who grew up in those areas are going into the workforce, having their own families. And so we see a generational shift where China has, has, is believing in nationalism. I, I don't think China believes in communism. And when you say that the party can look back at the Cultural Revolution and think, well, that's not us. We're, you know, in a sense, the party has changed so much since then. It's a historic event. But what about 1989? What about Tiananmen Square? Is that still, I mean, would the view still be that's still us? I mean, we are still that party. We are still the party that, apart from anything else, when the Soviet Union laid down the baton of communism, whatever that means, we didn't. That is still who we are. When, when I talk about the Cultural Revolution, I mean, I think we can very well go back to that stage. <laughs> Let's be clear. I mean, I think that the party, I don't know where the, this party is going in the future, but, you know, I've interviewed academics who feel like who've been exiled from the country because of freedom of speech going even more than they it had done in the noughties. We had this kind of window of relative liberalism when it came to social opinions and um, civil society that is now closing. And I don't know if there's a trend that's going to continue and therefore lead to another kind of cultural personality, cultural revolution or whatever it is. So I, I, I think I should clarify that. Well, I suppose I sort of meant the idea of something running out of control in that way, the idea that a movement could simply escape from any form of central political control and, and lead to the disaster that it did. That You can imagine the, the current leaders of the CCP thinking, well, that's clearly not us. We would never allow that to happen. But, but we would still behave perhaps as we w- as we did in 1989. That is us. Yeah, I think I think they're learning the lessons of um, 1989. And you know, obviously, those protesters were wanted democracy, but other social factors, other economic factors for it was also this increasing inflation and inequality of the 80s. There is, I guess, a Marxist opinion in China that um, these economic factors matter for social problems. What's interesting is that a lot of them have actually been looking at the culture wars in the, in the West or, or the George Floyd protests um, in America last year and thinking those social problems come when inequality is uncontrollable, when people are not economically happy with their lot. Um, that's part of the motivation for Xi Jinping going for common prosperity to kind of head off those social problems that come when the economy is not in a balanced way. So I think you know, they, they don't want the kind of, for example, the millennial despair at the moment where a lot of millennials think that they can't get on the housing ladder. They have a lot of work pressures. Being single children, they have a lot of elderly family members to look after, but not any siblings to share that burden with. And you see some of them turning against the government in that kind of distress. And what Xi Jinping wants to do through having common prosperity is to kind of head off those social problems before they become a real problem. And that's what we see in Evergrande as well, you know, kind of dampening down on a speculative housing bubble. If that means 
global stockholders or uh, leading property uh, real estate companies kind of go down, then maybe that's okay if it means those empty houses that Evergrande build could actually go to people who need them. So that's kind of the thinking um, that these economic issues lead to social issues. And so we have to solve the economic ones. Yeah, it seems to me that there's two different things going on in the way in which Xi Jinping at least seems to talk about these issues and want them framed is on the one hand, he wants to present the West as being chaotic and China as being a source of order. But then I think if you look at some of the the language about the 20th century history is that he wants continuity in the history of the Chinese Communist Party. It seems to me, I mean, maybe you correct me if I'm wrong here, Cindy, but he seems less keen on being able to draw a line that basically says there's Mao, that descended into chaos. Then we saw some sense, uh, we were more pragmatic about it, let's say. And then, and, and then we entered the Deng Xiaoping period of of reform and then we're on a trajectory to where we are now with this astonishingly rapid economic development. Isn't there some sense in which he wants those to tell a more continuous narrative about the Chinese Communist Party through this period and and not kind of label Mao and put him into Chinese chaos? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The party doesn't admit that it's wrong. The party doesn't admit that it was ever wrong in any of these <laughs> in any of these eras. The party just starts doing something else but comes up with a narrative of why the previous thing was necessary for the time. And even the Great Leap Forward is seen, you know, not as a mistake in, in official party law. And something like the Cultural Revolution was probably the closest you would ever get to an admission of mistake, because after Mao died, they passed a historical re- resolution and blamed it essentially on Mao's advisors, this gang, so-called Gang of Four, who led him astray. So even then, it wasn't you know, the great Chairman Mao's problem. So the party doesn't admit that it's a different party. The party doesn't admit that any of the things it's done before is wrong. And even if you look at the three-child policy now, essentially in a developed country, the three-child policy is a, no ch- is a limitless child policy, right? Because people on average don't want to have more than three children in any case. But they can't go ahead and say we've abolished a one-child policy. They have to limit, they have to raise it to a three-child policy, even though essentially a U-turn is what they've done. Um, so, yes, you're, you're completely right. You know, it's completely continuous in party law that they are this natural inheritors of not even just the first iteration of the Chinese Communist Party, but of Chinese history has led or has led to this current moment and different periods lead call for different types of leaders and different type of policies. And that's what we've seen. We've talked about lots of different aspects of contemporary Chinese politics and China's relationship with the wider world. Where's the risk, do you think? Where's the biggest risk in the short to medium term? What keeps you awake at night? I mean, something does, presumably. A leader who doesn't want to travel to Glasgow is not totally secure. Uh, (laughs) What's he most scared of, do you think? Oh, that's a a good question. Um, I think what he's most scared of is this modernisation of China that would lead to less loyalty, less legitimacy for the party. And that's, you can see a number of China's policies in that light, in particular, this this notion of common prosperity and this notion of getting the millennials on board. So I guess we're seeing um, a generation now who have never really seen the poverty of China. They may have um, parents who have done, grandparents certainly, but they themselves, born in the 80s or the 90s, have pretty much had good lives in China's economic growth. And so their relationship with the party is not going to be the same one of the party brought us out of poverty that their parents and their grandparents have. And so what happens when future generations grow up? Um, are they going to have the same relation to the party? So the party has having to ha- reinvent itself to have 
further relevance, as it were, in Chinese public opinion. And common prosperity is one way of doing that. Growing nationalism is another way that's kind of putting a wedge between China and the West is a way of doing that. Um, but it's got problems down the line in the sense that China's economic growth is slowing. You know, for the first time ever, China doesn't have a GDP target uh, this year. So it knows that it can't keep up the double digit growth figures um, of the last few decades. So what happens when living standards are not increasing, when new generations come that have a different relationship with the party, who are also um, very tech savvy and know what's happening in the rest of the world? And so you see more social media control. So you see more patriotic education, all of these things um, that you know ensure that the party will also have a grip in the future. And you know, related to that, what keeps me personally up at night is the direction of my country um, in this moment of change. Um, you know, in the noughties and in the even in the two thousand and tens, there was so much more you could say, so much more you could write. Uh, you had amazing, relatively independent newspapers um, or academics saying what they wanted, doing investigative stuff. All of that is changing at the moment. We're changing right now. We're shifting right now, and. You know, what keeps me up at night is thinking, what is China going to be like? What is Chinese society going to be like in five, 10 years time? Because are we going back to the bad old days where these things couldn't be said in the same kind of in the same kind of way? Um, And, you know, (laughs) I I guess for me, Hong Kong was um, quite a blow because it was it was a way for me to see what China could have been um, and Taiwan as well. So but right now, the authoritarianism is winning out in China. When you talk about generational politics and, and the generations to come, and you've used the language of millennials, are the generations conceived in the same way? Is there a Gen Z in China? Does that language cut across or, or is generational politics different? Is it framed by the history that we've been talking about, as it were? Is it a question of memory? The people who remember the Cultural Revolution, the people who remember Tiananmen Square, the people who don't. How are the generations divided? That's a great question. It's actually a bit more granular than what we have. It's um very um, literally, you would say people born after in the 80s or people born in the 90s. So you would say baling ho or jiu ling ho or qi ling ho. So you would say... It's like how we do pop music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Radio stations, absolute right. 80s, absolute 90s. So you'll see on oh, social media millennials. Like, Yeah. <laughs> you'll see posts on social media like, um, you know, nostalgia for anyone who's born in the 80s, that kind of stuff. Um, and that will, for example, include a lot of, um, you know, people, people born in the 70s, it would include a lot of Taiwanese music at the time when Taiwanese and Hong Kong music was the trend. But now that China's opened up a bit more, it doesn't feel as exotic anymore. So, so you, you, you split it by decades. But obviously, that the kind of history we're talking about right now couldn't really be talked about in common consciousness in China. People still talk about it. You will still have conversations like this in private homes, at the dinner table, that sort of stuff. But increasingly in schools, universities, anywhere that's kind of has a footprint, you're not able to talk about these sort of things. I was talking to someone who um, talked about someone Chinese who said that their teacher friends were afraid of being reported on by their students these days. So we're we're going in many ways, it seems backwards, which is incredibly sad (laughs) to bring it back to that sad note. (laughs) Sad note on which to end. If you want to hear Cindy Yu and Chinese Whispers, and we really do recommend it, you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up next on Talking Politics, we're recording a special live edition at the Bristol Economics Festival with Ed Conway. We're going to be talking about supply chains. We're going to be talking about inflation. We're going to be talking about the limits of growth. 
Do join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Hi. Hi there. I'm sorry. I actually can't. I actually don't have a microphone free at the moment because the podcast operation is now so big at the spectator. There's, there's a that, podcast um... being recorded at every minute of every day. Yeah, pretty much. It's like a factory over here. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.